0: This is the SFF Audio Podcast. I'm Scott.
1: And this is Jesse.
2: And I'm Bill Wu.
1: Hello, Bill. Hey, welcome. Hi, Bill. You are uh,
0: William F. Wu? That's right. Have I got the right person? (laughs)
2: <laughs> yep, that's me. That's, that's my absolutely. byline.
0: Yeah, you're the uh writer of uh I believe over fifty short stories. Um a couple of novels, yeah. two two
2: novels, how many novels? Actually it's uh thirteen novels. Thirteen oh, novels.
0: Yeah. Okay, I'm looking at the website uh, here. Go ahead.
2: <laughs> yeah, uh many of them were uh, in Isaac Asimov's universe. I was uh the first person contracted by his estate to write in his uh His universe after he passed away, so I was very, very honored about that.
0: That's great. Those are robot novels. Are they all in the? Yeah, uh, there was a
2: series. That's right. One series is called Isaac Asimov's Robots in Time, that's six volumes, and then there was a series called Robot City, and I wrote two of the six. Uh, These are all really aimed at a young adult audience, uh, pretty Mm -hmm. much for. Twelve-year-old boys, or right. at least what the publisher thinks of. <laughs> That's
1: great. And uh, I, I know you. I think best from uh, one of my favorite TV shows of all time, uh, The Twilight Zone, uh, 1980 series, right. 85 or 86. That's season right. You were, in. Oh, you were in 86 or 85. They only lasted two seasons, so. Um, <laughs> and it's in, a short, a short, short. It was or, in 1985.
2: Uh, 85. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, the short story was called, uh, or is called, Wong's Lost and Found Emporium. And I was uh, very honored by that also. It was a finalist for the Hugo Nebula and World Fantasy Awards. That's my uh, polite way of saying it lost all three. (laughs) (laughs) And then it was uh, adapted by the Twilight Zone, and I was able to go watch it filmed in Hollywood. That was very exciting. Oh, that's cool. Never, yeah, and I I think,
1: think you, you do sat. a commentary track on the D V D, don't you?
2: Oh yes, that's true. Uh, Alan Brenner, who is the uh he was the executive story editor for the show in the eighties, but he's also the person who wrote the adaptation. And he's also an old friend. So the two of us sat down and uh and did the uh commentary.
1: Yeah, it was a, a really enlightening and I, I think I mean if it wasn't from there, it was from somewhere else, maybe on uh Prisoners of Gravity or something. I heard uh... that this was a workshop story. Is that correct? It was like um, <clears throat> you went yes, to a right. story. How did that, how, how's this work out?
2: Yeah, well that that would have been on Prisoners of Gravity. Okay. And uh, what happened? This story actually had you know it's one of those uh, instant successes that took years to come around. <laughs> yeah. Um, I <laughs> I attended the Clarion Writers Workshop in science fiction and fantasy. Uh, in nineteen seventy four uh, nowadays i'm sometimes reluctant to admit how old I am, but yes, I was old enough to do that at seventy four and um, one of the instructors was Harlan Ellison, and he assigned the concept uh to write a story about where lost things go. Um, some people did very a very good job with those. I did one that really didn't work at all. Except I did have this sort of vague notion. Uh, it was outdoor uh, in this first concept that there would be just huge piles of stuff. I mean, there'd be a, a pile of cigarette lighters, you know, <laughs> in one spot, and maybe a huge mound of lost socks. You know, the, the unmatched socks that disappear in the dryer. Right. Um, <clears throat> but the story was a complete failure, and I liked the idea. I, ne- I never. Uh, let it go. I always wanted to work on it. And I actually still remember I was living in Florida. It was in Boca Raton, Florida, and one afternoon I just decided I was kinda of tired and thought I'd lie down and take a nap, which I rarely do. In nineteen eighty one. I mean this is how many years had gone by. And instead of taking a nap, the stupid story started to come together. All <laughs> so, right. But I realized I had something. I had to get out of bed and start writing down notes so I wouldn't forget it. So, uh, wrote it. Um, originally, I guess uh, I said eighty-one. Now I'm second guessing myself. I wonder if I finished. Um, no, uh, wrote it in eighty-one finished and submitted in 82. It appeared in Amazing Stories in 83 and it was up for awards in 84. Oh,
3: wow. <clears throat> well, that's great. And that's I great.
2: I am very pleased that people still remember it. I, I have also been teased a little bit. Um, I think at this point uh, I have, have not updated some of the information online. I think I'm up to 60 or 61 short stories now. <clears throat> Excuse me. Mm-hmm. The last few were still in the pipeline. They haven't appeared. But I've had Friends teased me and saying they're going to put Wong's Lost and Found Emporium on my gravestone. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. It was only the fifth short story I had published, so it really catapulted uh, me into some recognition very suddenly. So
0: how did the uh, um, Twilight Zone episode come about?
2: Um, <clears throat> it's uh, an interesting thing. I have... Uh, Another friend named Michael D. Toman, who attended the clarion workshop with Alan Brennert uh, the year before I went. So we're we're talking about relatively ancient times here. <laughs> but uh, Michael and I had uh, moved out from the state of Michigan to the Los Angeles area back in 1980. Here yeah, I'm throwing around all these old years. you okay. uh, <clears throat> like um, the old times. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Uh, Sometimes I wish I was that young again. Uh, Michael uh, sent a copy of the story to Alan when he was uh, gathering stories to present uh, for the Twilight Zone. You know, before, in the year before the uh, story came out, they were doing all the early preparation. And uh, the way Alan tells the story, he had actually stashed it in a desk drawer without reading it and forgot about it. (laughs) And so... He has told me that at the very last minute, he was kind of shuffling through papers and came across it. And then when he finally read it, he liked it cool. and uh, chose to do the adaptation himself. I, I was very pleased with how it came out. I know most people are not necessarily happy with Hollywood adaptations of their prose fiction, but I was I was very no, happy.
1: It with came it. out very well, I think.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yes. I
1: thought so, too. I I really liked uh, uh, the sh- that show format where you have an unknown length. Yes, you know, it's very <laughs> unusual, and what what that gives you is, you know, uh, along with the anthology aspect, you know, where there's different actors and different characters every show. Um, but that unknown oh. length also gives you this: when, how is this going to end? How is this going to turn
2: out? <laughs> you know, that's right. Yeah, there's there's no predicting. You know, the way we do if. Uh if it's ten minutes before the end of an hour, and you know the the show ends in ten minutes, you can, yeah, you can uh, come to some conclusions about that. But that was that was uh, a wonderful show. Um, I was a fan of watching it, not only my episode.
1: Well, there's some great episodes in that. Uh, the best adaptation, the best adaptation, the best version of, um, of the Cold Equations is in that episode. Or that series. Oh yes. Uh, right. Any other, you know, there's been two movies, maybe three movies, and lots of different, you know, novel length, you know, different variations. That's the best one.
0: Well, I am, I'm taking yeah, notes on that. <laughs> I watched uh, I watched your Twilight Zone episode uh, just this week in, in preparation for <clears throat> meeting you here on the podcast. And I, mm-hmm. I sure enjoyed it, but I didn't know that The Cold Equations was in that same series.
1: Ah, yeah, it's the best one, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, there's two audio drama versions, and there's the original story, which... Uh, it gets worse every time you read it. Unfortunately, <laughs> it's a great story for ideas and a bad, badly written story. But um, yeah, that the the, the movie, uh, uh, the video adaptation yeah. of the Twilight Zone is just stupendous. It's amazing.
2: Yeah, and it it is a uh, tremendously powerful story.
1: Indeed, um, but we don't want to talk about that old stuff we want to talk about really old stuff uh, right. yellow peril is what we just did a podcast on and we you know i i in my research for this i i uh i went to the library and i said uh, give me everything you have on the yellow peril and they said well we don't have anything and i said "Well, <laughs> what else uh, what have the other libraries got and they did a search for me and they found uh Uh, this book called The Yellow Peril, which (laughs) just happens to be (laughs) a perfect title. And after I got it in my hand through an interlibrary loan, um, it had this guy's name, William F. Wu, on the cover. And I thought, wait a second, that name's really (laughs) familiar. And, of course, a little digging around the Internet, I found out it's actually somebody I, I, you know, had heard the voice of and and read about and read the stories of. So um, I was really excited to, you know, find out that you I I I don't even know how I I guess you have a website that's how I found you right
2: <laughs> right so
1: yeah <laughs> i sent you an email i think um, <laughs> that's right well i i want to i want to talk about this this amazing book uh because <laughs> it is a scholarly look at um you know what 90 years of literature on on mm-hmm. the fictional well let me let me let you t-
2: Say what it's about. Well, the, the subtitle is Chinese Americans and American Fiction, 1850 to 1940. And, of course, I'm limiting it uh, somewhat. I knew that if I expanded to fiction, say, from Canada or in other languages, uh, it would get too big. And also, I chose the cutoff of 1940 because once we get into World War II, the the whole concept just explodes, of course, after Pearl Harbor in the right. uh, or in the Pacific. So, um, this was a revised version of my doctoral dissertation from the University of Michigan in uh, the program in American culture, and I was uh, a grad student in that program when I took uh, Eric Rabkin's class in science fiction, also cool. many years ago. <laughs> That's great. So I was uh, trying to cover quite a bit of uh, material, but I also felt that this the literature goes mostly in a straight line, but there are a few exceptions, including authors of Chinese descent who actually do write a little bit of fiction about Chinese Americans in that time period. So they're a little bit outside of the, uh, the thrust of the Yellow Peril.
1: But it so, would still be for white audiences, presumably, or at least the majority yes. audience
2: yes
0: were they that still was they still writing about Chinese as uh peril the chinese
2: um papers? they really were not I, I mean it gets a little tricky in some cases because they certainly are aware that other people um are viewing them that way, mm-hmm. and in uh you know, in one case, um, an author whose pen name was uh, Sui-Sin Far or Sui-Sin Fa, she spelled it a couple of different ways a few times. Um, <clears throat> she has a remarkably, uh, I don't know, almost everyday presentation of a Chinese-American family. I'm trying to remember, I believe it was, uh, they were in Seattle. I know that that's where she was based but uh there's a scene where uh you know the boy in the family comes home he's uh, wearing a baseball cap and uh just says uh hello mom hello sis (laughs) you know like any other english speaking (laughs) kid coming home from a baseball game might happen to do and it really does stand out not that uh She's directly or or explicitly dealing with the yellow peril, but it's such a strong contrast compared to the other work that's appearing at the same time.
1: Mm-hmm. I, I think I remember reading uh, uh, something in the short story chapter about mm-hmm. about uh, the first uh, the first depiction that you could find of a uh, uh, Chinese American talking about uh, the yellow peril in a. And it was sort of a mixed. Uh, You know, there was a lot of mixed stuff. So there was one, you know, one month it would be somebody who is, um, you know, look at how dangerous the Chinese are. They're just crazy uh, with the, uh, I think there was one of the invasion stories where the mayor of San Francisco had been replaced by, uh, you know, uh, an immigrant and he was, he was, Sworn in by having the head of a chicken cut off, or something like that.
2: Right, right.
1: Yeah, <laughs> like apparently that's a tri- traditional Chinese way of
2: swearing in the mayor. <laughs> yeah, it's one I never never heard of before. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. The uh, the stories of Chinese invasion are interesting. Also, in that uh, you know the, this first grouping is from the 1880s and 90s, and then when we jump forward a little bit to the to the pulp magazine era. Uh you know it's heyday, I guess, in the nineteen twenties, thirties, and forties um we see it again mm-hmm. uh, although I will say for the pulp magazines, i mean there was one pulp magazine where the the poor hero had saved the entire world from destruction every two weeks. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he must have gotten awfully tired <laughs> <clears throat> but um yeah, these invasion stories are interesting also because of the uh the contradiction um. The the one you, the uh, the chicken mm-hmm. <laughs> decapitation of a chicken. It's called the Battle of Wabash. Right, um, I've got it here. S- yeah, it's set in the forty-two. Right, twenty says, seventy. Uh,
1: yeah, it, from eighteen eighty to twenty seventy-eight. So these are the this is a style of nineteenth-century fiction that you know a very sweeping narrative. You know, it's like a, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> more predictive. You know, this is what's going to happen rather than um, you know traditional science fiction, which is I guess. Um, Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, showing the consequences of technological change or something. This is more like I don't know. It's it's barely science fiction, I would guess.
2: <clears throat> well, that's true. I, I suppose <clears throat> I'm not aware of any particular work like this, but I think sometimes when I see the political chatter right now about Hispanic immigration to the United States, uh, I sometimes am reminded of these books. The idea that. Mm-hmm. Uh, people who are very different are going to swarm in such huge numbers that everything is going to change. Um, seems to be the kind of the background concept, but um, also in these, uh, you know, we see um, <clears throat> a lot of similarity here when the, uh, to some of the other work. When sometimes the danger is that people are so different. Sometimes the danger is that people. Don't share the same values, and then, in this one uh, uh <clears throat> story, I'm trying to look for which one it is <laughs> the The problem is that uh the Chinese immigrants of the time were seen as so efficient that is they were very hard working and thrifty, and therefore they were uh, very tough competition right, and so- you know Traits that would be considered mm-hmm. virtues
1: are also yeah the a Protestant a, Protestant work ethic uh, gone crazy right
2: <laughs> right right if somebody else has that work ethic then it's uh, <laughs> a danger.
1: A lot of these uh, stories were in oh sorry Scott
0: no no I was just going to say I'm surprised it hadn't occurred to me that, to draw that parallel between you know immigration in the United States today and um, and back then but it's interesting that we're not we're not seeing any. Um, At least i don't know of any uh fiction in which you know there's uh you know some type of a hispanic peril type of thing (laughs) you know but it's 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 almost a different thing um you know like in the the fu manchu you know uh you know super genius uh fu manchu was a a genius and um, had science all the way back to the ancient times and um, right. so I, I think he said something about future and past science is at, at his fingertips um, right. but but why why do you think but there wasn't like wave after wave of Chinese immigrants into the United States was there?
1: There were there, were, well, there I, were I, waves I know though. that there
0: were some but it was like but people are worried about today
2: um, I think that the level of worry was related in part to the fact, of course, that the whole population was smaller. I mean, the world population was smaller, but North America, too. Um, One of the things I noted in the historical parts in uh, the book is that in the the gold rush, for instance, uh, Chinese immigration was second to the Irish and just a little bit ahead of German immigration but of course you know you're talking with, with the irish you're talking about people who are not only white but they speak english and yet there was so much hostility toward irish immigration in, right. at a similar time mm-hmm. it's it's interesting it's uh you know it's sort of like you know the majority is uh beating up on the irish immigrants and the Im- irish immigrants can turn around and beat up on the chinese immigrants and uh <clears throat> of course on the west coast um there was there was this uh feeling that well the Irish were more likely to fit in. But I might uh mention uh remember a line about this from the movie Blazing Saddles? It's sounding familiar actually.
1: <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um it happens that Blazing Saddles came out when I was in grad school. It was actually before I started working on this. And uh i I'll have I am going to use the terms that were in the original movie. Fine, all right. <laughs> <We like> <laughs> but, uh, you know, the great character actor Slim Pickens is looking out over a group of would-be railroad workers, and he'll say, and he says, uh, we'll take all the chinks and niggers you got, but we don't want no Irish. <laughs> 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 and, you know, it's classic Mel Brooks humor, taking a twist. Uh that has a core of truth behind it. So, um, yeah, and
0: and that's that's something too. You know, in, in answer to my own question, partly is, um, I can't imagine anybody writing something as uh, blatantly racist as the, that Fu Manchu novel was. The insidious Doctor Fu Manchu. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it was difficult to read. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I know I'm a hundred years removed. Not uh, just
1: because it was badly written either. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, but it's, uh, yeah, go ahead
2: it's one of those interesting things where sometimes a, a character does really work in the popular imagination and I think in, in that sense uh, characters like Fumashu and Charlie Chan do come along with characters like Superman and Tarzan who you know outlive their original readership and they have something that really works over a period of time. Um, I read a great deal of Sax Romer's work, uh, Sax Romer being the author who created Fu Manchu, because I wanted context on you know who this guy was and what's he really doing. And <clears throat> a couple of things uh, were interesting. One is, uh, well, I'll mention this is also in the book that in some of the writing about uh, the Chinatowns, there are precursors to a character like Fu Manchu, um, a yellow peril character. He is a a Chinese man, usually older, uh, extremely well-educated, brilliant, and threatening in some way. He's uh, the bad guy. Mm -hmm. And so in that sense, I think uh, Sax Romer pulled Fu Manchu together, um, you know, maybe out of a social atmosphere. I'm not suggesting that he took uh, the character from any Previous characters. I think I read somewhere that he, uh, in part, based the character on someone he had met, and this would have been uh, a well educated Chinese uh, visitor or possibly immigrant uh, to England, I guess. And exactly how how Sax Romer decided to make this interesting person into <laughs> a, a villain who threatens the world in in uh, all 13 novels and three short stories and one novelette. <laughs> but uh, wow. it is interesting to me in a couple of ways because um, – well, I'm going to read uh, the introduction right out of the book. The way Sax right. Romer presents the character uh, certainly is, is uh, I think, rather powerful. Here we go. Imagine a person – Tall, lean, and feline, high-shouldered, with a brow like Shakespeare and a face like Satan, a close-shaven skull and long magnetic eyes of true cat green. Invest him with all the cruel cunning of an entire Eastern race, accumulated in one giant intellect, with all the resources, if you will, of a wealthy government, which, however, has already denied all knowledge of his existence. Imagine that awful being, and you have a mental picture of Dr. Fu Manchu, the yellow peril incarnate in one man. And I say a whole bunch of things here. He is brilliant with a brow like Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he is evil with a face like Satan. Mm-hmm. Now, why an Asian guy would have green eyes, I do not know. Um, uh, you know, if, if there's mixed race involved, <laughs> I know that that can happen.
1: Mutation! <clears throat> yeah.
2: <laughs> but, um, you know, the cruel cunning of an entire Eastern race, so he is, as the Yellow Peril incarnate, he is representing a race, and that's one of the things that is uh, uh, different about the character. Uh, nowadays, I, I would suppose we would have authors go out of their way as, as I've heard people say uh, at times that well, it's not because he's Chinese. it's he, He's an individual. You know, yeah. He's acting on his own.
3: Sure.
2: Um, that was often the response I got. I wrote a lot of letters to Marvel, DC, and Charlton Comics at one time. Mm. Uh, often about uh, Asian characters, I did not like, and on rare occasions uh, when they handled an Asian character in a way that I thought was done well. And <clears throat> one of the things I've always said is that it's not that the characters always have to be good guys. My question was, are they representing a race or an ethnic group, or are they individual characters like the white characters? You know, we don't see we don't see Batman uh, representing all all-white men. He's, mm-hmm. Bruce Wayne is actually a little strange, if you think about it. Very strange. <laughs> and, of course, Superman, Kal-El, he's an alien. He's from another planet. Just happens to look like, you know, a regular guy in Metropolis. So <laughs> <laughs> right, right. But one of the things, yeah, about Fu Manchu representing a yellow peril is that I think a lot of earlier attitudes uh, all came together to make this work. I mean, several generations of um... interaction obviously not just in the united states and Sax romer was british uh... you know this is the heyday of the british empire so they have taken hong kong as a crown colony and they have a park in beijing that says no chinese or dogs allowed and uh... Wow. the british were <laughs> certainly uh... also in a lot of uh... interaction with east asia
1: <coughs> mm-hmm. Awesome. Yes, let's uh, let's. Um, uh, I, I, I first have a question. What does uh, F in William F. Wu stand for? It's not Fu, is it? Because <laughs> <laughs> you are a doctor. <laughs> I, I'm starting You're to get just, worried here. You're <laughs> very intimidating,
2: sir. It is. It is not Fu. I have had. Uh, uh, friends make good-natured, good good-natured jokes about uh, my last name Wu, rhyming with uh, Fu, and so on. My my middle name is actually uh, it was my mother's maiden name, which is interesting historically because it's based on a mistake. It's a <clears throat> it's an error, uh, either by an immigration uh, official to the United States with my maternal grandfather or possibly someone in a school but uh he came over as a young guy uh uh he was a native of Fujian province in China which is right across the straits of taiwan from taiwan and uh but he came from a a merchant family and he was educated partly at private schools in britain and france and germany and he was uh eventually accepted to the University of Michigan. I am the third generation of my family there. Mm -hmm. Uh, My parents having met there also. But uh, he wanted to use the first name Frank and his last name uh, was going to be anglicized, either NG or ING. Mm-hmm. And you know somebody said what's your name and he said Franking and they ran together as one name.
1: <laughs> I've heard so, that similar stories many right, times.
2: Right. Yeah, so my middle name is Franking as in postal <laughs> privileges. Right. <laughs> <You> know. <laughs> that was my mother's maiden name and she had two older brothers so their uh, their descendants are also uh, have the surname Franking. <laughs> That's awesome. Amazing. Yep. <laughs> You know, while we're on the subject, the name William was a mistake also. (laughs) My father (laughs) came uh, to the United States from China when he was uh, 11, we we think. The the records on his age are a little fuzzy, but officially I believe he was 11. And he went to school, and the teacher kept calling him William, and he didn't know why, but he could tell she was addressing him. It turned out she had seen his last name, W.U., She misread it as WM and thought his name was William. Ah. So two of my three names come from (laughs) other people making
1: (laughs) it. One of my my jobs, uh, I'm a uh, ESL teacher and one of my jobs is, uh, the the most interesting part of my job perhaps, is uh, when I get Korean students I teach Korean students. When uh, Korean students come to uh, Canada um, I'm often asked to give them a name. Which is a very strange thing because you know they have a name, right? Right. Um, But they want an English name, and so it's a it's a hard task. Often, especially if you've got a student who whose English isn't great, Mm -hmm. um, uh, you you know you you, you try and find something that either sounds similar, or you find something that has a um, uh, uh, similar meaning, if you if you can, Um, and it's something that they also like. Right. Uh, but they're asking you for advice. I mean, it's not like I pick the name and that's it. It's it, but mm-hmm. you know what name would be a good name for me? If they ask, and so uh, the problem is is there's a lot of people with the exact same name. So uh, right. female stu- female students often end up being named Anna, which mm-hmm. is uh, all too common. And so you have three students in the same school all named Anna. Um, it's difficult. So. I try to mix it up and try and get away from the traditional, you know, English names and go go for some more, um, uh, you know, historical names like um, uh, 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 Persephone. <laughs> you know, instead of Anna, Persephone. Why? Why is Persephone good? Well, it's Greek, not English, and it it can be shortened to Percy, right? Yeah, she's um, a good a good girl's name, um, and it, it tends uh, it's it's fun, but it's also very frightening because you're you're naming someone and yet they're a, an adult, right? Or a, uh, you know, a proto adult. Right. <laughs> um, it's a scary yeah. idea, but um, it, there is this tradition of uh, you know Asians take on English names. Yes, why why <clears throat> does this take hold? Um, in is there just?
2: Is I, I there, think it. I think it comes to a couple of things. One is that uh, a lot of them Um, don't—not
1: anymore. But I think I think it
2: used to be more common. Well, even in my my father's generation, he had a lot of friends who came over to the United States. Uh, Some of them were fleeing communism after nineteen forty nine. A lot of them used their initials. They never really took. You know, they might have a Chinese name that starts with two C's. And so, you know, it's C. C. Chang was the name of one friend of ours. Um, and there was there was uh, uh, an athlete at UCLA uh, who was in a famous competition for the decathlon in 1960 and won the pentathlon a little later. But uh, I believe his name was C.K. Yang. And if I made a mistake there, I apologize to him and the But a lot of them used the initials rather than take on a name and I think one of the things is that of course for people like myself born here I think my parents just figured it's going to be a whole lot easier to have an English name but but my parents grew up here my mother came as a baby and her parents had been in Michigan then they were overseas for five years and came back so she was born in China but you know they had roots in the United States established before that but we also going back farther um you know you have these uh, layers of immigration you have people like my father's maternal grandfather was in the San Francisco Bay Area in the gold rush era and I've met other descendants of uh, Chinese immigrants from that time who kept their Chinese names they may not have spoken much English maybe didn't at all but we also see uh, English names adopted very quickly when people are born and raised in the United States, I don't know um, how much of that was seen as an attempt to fit in because visually they still didn't fit in, of course. Um, but also just the use of language. Uh, mm. I know that in oh the the age group uh, of say the nineteen fifties, um, a lot of Chinese Americans. Um, they had the, the names David and Amy were very popular. That's I don't know David exactly. Lopan.
1: We've got David Lopan
2: Yeah, some. Right, right. I, I have met a ton of Davids with Chinese surnames and a lot of Amys also. But I got a little bit of an explanation from someone once, and that is that in Mandarin Chinese, uh, da means can mean big or great. Uh, so it's sometimes the modifier. Uh, if you were maybe it's a little wishful thinking, but if you're naming a son with a Chinese name that means you know he's going to be a great scholar or a great merchant or <laughs> you know, uh-huh. successful in some way, um, that might be part of his name or his nickname. But also they might just hear the word David and think, well, that's got that kind of it's got the right sound. It's got the sound we want. And a name like Amy also um, has phonetics that are in both Mandarin and Cantonese, so names like that are easy for immigrant parents to feel comfortable with mm-hmm. and then again i I do not know why uh well, my mother uh my mother's first name was she pronounced it Cecil though she had an e on the end of it you know for the females Seal, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, her two older brothers were many named Nelson and Allison. Allison was an A L A S O N and he was a guy, my uncle Allison.
3: Huh.
2: Um but I don't her mother was uh a young white woman of uh Michigan farm stock <laughs> who wound up marrying this Chinese immigrant uh foreign student at the University of Michigan. I don't know how they selected those names. Maybe uh, maybe she picked them in from some way that <laughs> our family you know, is lost to our own history. Mm. But uh, the the question of names really is very interesting because uh, I mentioned earlier the author Sway Sin Fa uh-huh. and her real name was Edith Eaton. Uh, she and her sister were both published authors. They were her ancestry was uh, half Chinese and half white, and if I remember correctly, they were born in England, moved to the United right. States, yeah, and, and she moved to uh, uh, Seattle. Um, but she wanted her uh, her pen name to be a Chinese name, so she's going the other direction. <laughs>
1: Well, so, uh, I, I didn't get a chance to read uh, your entire your entire book, but I, I was wondering um, you know, one of the at least the experiences here in Vancouver um, was that you know the the Chinese immigrants or emigrants would be coming uh, not not to move here but to make money and then go home. Um, yes, yeah. was, was this did this play into the? I mean, it it sort of works counter to the idea of it, you know. The Chinese are taking over, which is the Yellow Peril idea, and, and yet I right. don't I don't remember seeing any of that in a lot of the stories. It's um,
2: um I don't recall exporting
1: it, wealth or what's what, yeah, how right. would they work it out.
2: I don't recall that it um, showed up in a lot of of the fiction, and it is one of the things, one subject that has been controversial in Americans of Chinese descent looking back, and it may mm-hmm. very well be true of. Chinese Canadians I'm not sure but uh, there was both uh, you know this this contradictory complaint they're coming over here they're going to you know mine our gold and and work and, and make money and you know send it back to China and then go on back with it and at the same time they're coming over here to stay so we're dealing in a you know fundamental contradiction right from the beginning um, there are people who did go back. One of the things in my family and my father's side is that his maternal grandfather uh, was, as I said, was in the Bay Area during the gold rush era. Later on he did go back to China. Then his uh, son, my grandfather, uh, remained in China. He became uh, a scholar under the Qing Dynasty, the Manchus. But then my father came to the United States as a child. They had not really given up on the idea of someone coming to the United States, and I think uh, they were intending probably for my father to get uh contemporary American education and go back to china um, One of the things that happened actually was he uh after he got his uh, m d from the University of Michigan, he had a potential position at uh, what was called Yale in China Hmm. uh, to work as a doctor but uh, World War II got in the way and so uh, that didn't come about.
1: Got in the way for a lot of people
2: Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) But on the other hand you know it raises the other question. What about all the people who stayed? Did they intend to stay? Um, Hmm. Did they intend to go back and just couldn't? And and I think there's uh, probably a big mix of all of these things. Um, You know, there there are people of Chinese descent all over Southeast Asia. They're in Australia, in many of the Polynesian islands. And uh, one of the things that I also wrote about in in the book The Yellow Peril was that there was a a major civil war uh, in China during much of the same time period that uh, european countries were colonizing uh, parts of china so you've got this uh, civil war that raged for fourteen years mm-hmm. and uh... you know disrupted a lot of people's lives and of course it's the people at the bottom of course who suffer the most they would be the peasants who don't own any land or don't own much and don't have any money so these are the people who are desperate to find their way somewhere and You know, some went to the United States, some went to Canada, you know, Australia, or to what is now uh, Vietnam, Thailand. Uh, They went where they could. And the question of whether uh, were they planning to come home, you know, it's sort of hard to tell because when you got people who are desperate, you know, maybe they maybe they're planning day to day. Maybe they're not saying, "Here's my here's my twenty year plan." That's right. Here's my life. Uh, Um. But the accusations did go in both directions, and it's another of the interesting uh, contradictions we're gonna come here and take our wealth and leave, and we're also gonna come here and stay <laughs> we don't <laughs> like either <one. laughs> um,
1: <clears throat> i want I wanted to go back to fu- the fu manchu series uh, mm-hmm. if I can because I've only read the first novel and um I've seen several of the movies uh, right. uh, and uh i've I've done all sorts of other uh yellow peril stuff but in the, in, in the Fu Manchu series, I'm given to understand that he... Uh, the the Sax Romer sort of becomes enamored with his creation in the sense that he becomes more sympathetic to uh, Fu Manchu's uh, <coughs> goals, I guess it is, as, it, as <laughs> they go on. Is that right?
2: One of the things that happened was that, uh, like Arthur Conan Doyle, who got tired of Sherlock Holmes... Uh, Sax Romer wrote uh three uh Fu Manchu novels close together 1913, 1916 and 1917 and they were tremendous popular and course, go on to become adapted uh for Hollywood in his lifetime, uh both in the 1930s and the 1950s um, and then he picked them up again uh quite a bit later uh he wrote A lot of different novels and short stories dealing with suspense, the occult, uh, with the Chinese in England. Uh, And then in the late 1920s, he returned to uh, Fu Manchu series. Uh, Ultimately, uh, the book came out in 1931. It was a serial first in Collier's magazine. But uh, he does go back and forth a couple of times. I can tell you, I read... All 13 novels in the short fiction <laughs> repeatedly because I had to get the general, um, <clears throat> go from the general to the specific and back again. But one of the things he does is that in, in the middle books and the later books in the series, Fu Manchu is depicted as all his word. Yeah. And yeah, this is very important because it's one of the traits that also gives him some vulnerability. Good guys can uh, advantage of because he is so brilliant and has so many people conformed. It's tough to fight people like that. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> but it's his uh, also. right? Yes, it is. that's right. It's his Kryptonite. And uh, Romer actually goes through a couple of other things. Uh, there is uh, a period in the later books where uh, the the hero, Aylan Smith, uh, the hero of the series, Uh, sees that someone is about to shoot Fu Manchu and stops him, saying no. Something about how brilliant he is. Hmm. Uh, You know, you don't want to kill one of the most brilliant minds ever. Mm -hmm. But then in later books, they're trying to kill him again.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Don't kill off my best character. Right,
2: (laughs) Nobody will read
1: about me if Fu Manchu is dead.
0: Oh, that's funny.
1: I've got another
0: question. Um, You know, I read that book as well, the, the first one. Uh, the mm-hmm. insidious Doctor Fu Manchu. But well, I was just curious, how
2: popular were these books at the time? Uh, they were tremendously popular. I, I don't have numbers. I remember when I was doing research, I was trying to get some numbers. But part of the problem is the, uh, you know, the rights have moved from one publisher to another over a period of time. So mm-hmm. trying to uh, get numbers on how many sold was impossible, but. What I did learn was that these were uh, really uh, Sax Rumor's, you know, lasting creation. They were the one that, that his most popular uh, and most familiar. And, of course, uh, they were uh, – the Fu Manchu character was imitated throughout the pulp magazines. And they came out again in the 1970s. Uh, this is how I read them. There was uh, – I don't remember the publisher at this moment, but this is – how they were easily available to me in paperback at the time. And so they like all the came books, out again. The
0: book, are you saying the books were re-released in the 70s or that The Yellow Peril yes. became popular again in the 70s?
2: Yeah. I the, guess both. Yeah, Sax Romer's uh, Fu Manchu series was re-released in the 1970s. Yeah.
0: I, I watched a Doctor Who episode called uh, The Talons <laughs> of Wang Chiang. Yeah, oh yeah, was from 77, <laughs> I believe.
2: Right, right. Yeah. Um there are a lot of Fu Manchu imitations that show up in a lot of different books, magazines, TV shows. Some of them are uh very specifically uh based on Fu Manchu. Others are kind of loosely so, I think because they don't don't want to deal in uh, copyright issues. But um you know the thing with the talons is uh also has to do with the old style Chinese scholars letting their fingernails grow long, so right. <laughs> these guys would have that. But uh, yeah, the Fu Manchu it's character. the best
1: episode of do- Doctor Who ever. It's it's a pastiche <laughs> of of sort of uh, uh, Fu Manchu and Sherlock Holmes together, hmm. and um, it, it also has the giant rat of Sumatra.
3: Oh yes, <laughs>
1: For no, no apparent reason in the in the uh, you know the tunnels under Limehouse. Um, well, but uh, but the right. the main villain is actually not the you know the the main villain who's a Chinese illusionist is mm-hmm. actually not the main villain. There's another guy behind him who's actually uh, from a future Earth that is um, completely taken over by China, and uh, he has a time machine to travel back in time, and and he's lost the key to his time machine or whatever. <laughs> uh, but in order to do this, he has to uh, to stay alive because he's. Body was damaged by radiation or something. He has to drain the life out of uh, young English women. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it gets it gives you all the yellow peril goodness with a typical Doctor Who time travel and a bit of uh, uh, you know Victorian um, Sherlock Holmesian style business. Yeah, yeah but you know like Nyland fun. Smith is and his his sidekick are really a kick. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. um, a rip off of. Sherlock Holmes and his sidekick,
2: right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Nayland Smith and Doctor Petrie, or Petrie, sometimes pronounced in the movies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah. with Sherlock Holmes and Doctor Watson. Yeah. Yeah. Notice the same thing.
1: When when I talked to you uh, last week, I think it was we talked a little bit about um, one of my favorite movies, um, Mm -hmm. the uh, uh, movie called Big Trouble in Little China, or John Carpenter's Big Trouble in (laughs) Little China. And yes. uh, you were telling me uh, oh, that you you actually met Lopan.
2: Oh yes, uh, James Hong, a great character actor. His first uh, first movie he was in starred Clark Gable, so uh, he has been around a while. I saw him recently on one of the uh, contemporary TV shows, so he is still still working. And uh, it, it was fun, to, you know, with his last name Hong and my. Uh, one of my novels being Hong on the range i used a similar <laughs> surname <laughs> uh i met him at uh, the san diego comic con uh, he was uh, you know signing 8 uh, by 10s and you know selling them and other uh, memorabilia from his career and i just went up to him with the book cuz i thought it was funny and just wanted to introduce myself and tell him i enjoyed his performances uh, you know throughout so much time and uh, we did get acquainted a little bit. It happened that at that time, I had a girlfriend with natural red hair and green eyes. And of course, we remember from Big Trouble in Little China, he was looking for the girl with green eyes.
1: Yeah. And, uh, for very similar reasons as uh, the, uh, <laughs> the monster in the, the Talents of Wang Chang, <laughs> to <laughs> right. reviv- revivify his life or something.
2: <laughs> but... Uh, and I, I was entertained. I think the following week I got a, a message from him on my answering machine saying, uh, "This is James Hong. I'm calling Bill Wu and looking for the girl with green eyes." <laughs> so, <laughs> that was a recording I, I was not able to transfer. I wished I'd been able to. <laughs> that would've <have> been awesome. <laughs> great. Yeah, I'd like to keep it. <laughs> I, uh, uh,
1: the most. I asked a ton of people about uh, the Yellow Peril. You know who? You know what? What have you read? And um, one of my friends um, who, who reads old, really old nineteenth-century uh, newspapers—we've had him on the podcast before, uh, Mister Mister Ron, uh, Mister Ron's base—he he actually recommended uh, one that I hadn't heard of, but uh, wanted to see as soon as he mentioned it. It's a comedy uh, called "The Fiendish Plot of Doctor Fu Manchu," starring Peter Sellers. It's the oh, last yeah. the last night it's from 1980 and it's the most recent Fu Manchu movie. Right. Um, and it's it's got all the, you know, all the standard <laughs> stuff but uh done as a comedy and I thought it worked extremely well, but apparently <laughs> nobody agrees with me. It's, it's got a very <laughs> low rating on IMDb. <laughs> 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 it probably isn't available on DVD at all.
2: It, it it becomes a different kind of problem, you know, when uh Uh, people are looking at a character like this who has been uh, a very effective and popular villain and now they're saying well it's not going to work because a lot of sensibilities have changed and a character like that uh, you know was very much superseded by um, you know characters uh, based on Chinese communism for instance were a much more immediate threat but uh, on the other hand when you've got you know if you have Peter Sellers playing Fu Manchu. Now you've got the same question also as the white actors who played Charlie Chan, and you know the whole question of uh, what some people have called uh, you know white actors in yellow face. Uh,
1: right. <clears throat> I watched the Christopher Lee version of uh, uh, I think it was the face of Fu Manchu. Yes. And yes. Uh, you know Christopher Lee is about seven feet tall. Uh, right. Doesn't look at all Chinese. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, um, none of the none of the Chinese actors in the movie look Chinese either, because uh, I think they filmed it all in England and they right. ran out <laughs> of actors. <laughs> <laughs> so you've got all these henchmen who you know, uh, very uh, very English, you know. Right, stuntman right. luck to them. <laughs>
2: yeah, <laughs> and you know, it's it's also one of these things where. You know Christopher Lee and Peter Sellers, tremendously talented actors,
3: mm-hmm.
2: uh, and then you get them in a a role like this that is controversial for other reasons. And I, sometimes I, you know, I personally would have preferred that the roles uh, not have been brought back. But uh, you know, I don't blame actors for taking a job. That's uh, no. that's a different matter. <laughs> yeah.
1: Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I'm just looking at the Wikipedia entry, and um, mm-hmm. you were you were saying about you were um, writing to the comics. Um, oh yes, I know that I know that there was uh, there's some problem reissuing the uh, some of the I think it's the Kung Fu. There was a Kung Fu Marvel comic, mm-hmm. and Master he was of Kung Fu Master of Kung Fu, and he was the su- supposedly the son of Fu Manchu in the original right. comics. And yes. subsequent to that, they've not been allowed to use. Uh, Fu Manchu as his father, so they just mention him as the doctor or something like that.
2: Right, right. It's one of those things where uh, I I don't know actually if it's that they can't use it. Yeah, they would have to pay so much money it's not worth it. But uh, Master of Kung Fu has a particular place in my life because I was writing letters uh, to a lot of the comics. Mm-hmm. because I grew up on comic books too I grew up mm-hmm. on comic books, science fiction, movies, TV you know, and all the stuff and uh, <clears throat> one of the things that I found that in general in the comics say uh, we're talking about the 1970s again here for Master of Kung Fu mm-hmm. is that in general the attitude toward racial issues was very inclusive uh, they were very aware of bringing in uh, black characters black heroes for the first time and uh and <clears throat> there were characters uh, dealing with um, contemporary social issues in a lot of the different comics. Commun- mm-hmm. One of the best known is the Green, Lan- uh, Green Lantern, Green Arrow series. But there was also uh, a time when Captain America dropped his name and got on a motorcycle and was traveling around the country uh, you know, with a different identity. Mm-hmm. There were a lot of... Characters checking out different kinds of things. And then at the same time, you know, here we are in 1974. It's a year after Bruce Lee's classic movie, Enter the Dragon. And the idea, of course, of a martial arts hero for the comics, it does sound like it's a natural. natural, yeah. Yeah. Um, but yes, they licensed uh, the rights to Fu Manchu and made the character um, half Asian and half white. His name is Shang-Chi. Mm-hmm. And uh, I wrote, one of the things I wrote about was uh, that even though, um, you know, since my maternal grandmother was white, I have mixed uh, racial ancestry and proud of it, uh, English, Scottish, and Welsh, <laughs> through mm-hmm. her, um, I had noticed that an awful lot of occasions, these good guys all have to be part white. You don't have them being completely Asian. And I wrote a letter about that, and others well, had quite a few letters published in the letters column when Doug Mensch was uh, writing Master of Kung Fu. Mm-hmm. We never met face-to-face, but we had uh, quite a tremendous <laughs> uh, <clears throat> correspondence going on, and I was raising issues about how the characters were presented and then the ideas, and he was he was writing back, and... Uh, You know, some of uh, some of my other letters to other comics were published. Some of them were not. Um, uh, There were some where, in my zeal, I made errors, and uh, that was always embarrassing. Uh, I wrote a number of letters to Denny O'Neill, who neither responded nor printed any of them. Doug Mensch and I got to the point where we were sometimes writing notes to each other in which uh, some of it was meant for publication and some was not. and We actually had personal discussion about what was going on. And I came to like the series more and more as it moved, he took it into a kind of James Bond uh, area. And uh, Paul Gulacy's artwork, a tremendous artist whose early depictions of Asian characters I criticized heavily in a uh, in a comics uh, fanzine but um, by the time uh, the series ended I had uh, I gotten acquainted with Doug Minch at least uh, through correspondence and can tell you uh, it is funny I, this is going to go back to the Twilight Zone and the reconnect here mm-hmm. but um, after I watched the Twilight Zone episode of Wong's Lost and Found Emporium uh, filmed um I wrote a piece for Starlog magazine about what it was like to watch my adaptation. And one, I got a big kick out of, out of this phone conversation. I had to call the uh, editor at Starlog at some point uh, just about the article. And we're talking about it back and forth. Everything's fine. And we're saying goodbye. And just as we say goodbye, he said, Wait a minute, wait a minute. Somebody's asking me something. <laughs> and then he comes back on and says, uh, they want to know if you're the same Bill Wu who wrote all those letters to Marvel Comics. And when I was through laughing, I said yes, and you know, proud of it. And I was, I was, the people remembered. <laughs> oh wow! So
1: you- no prize then, I guess.
2: Uh, well, I never actually received one.
1: Yeah, well, that's the thing about the no prize, right?
2: <laughs> well, they it, they, well, they would come in an envelope. I, I am oh, a really? <laughs> friend of mine who has a no prize. Yeah, it's a it's an empty envelope. <laughs>
1: Oh okay it's an empty envelope
2: okay. yeah it would come from Marvel with nothing in it you know but he's got his envelope that had his no prize inside yeah
1: <laughs> officially enclosed no prize inside right oh, wow. <laughs> uh, it's it's I, I'm wondering I, I, I don't read a lot of comics in comic form anymore I always get them in trade paperback I wonder if there is a... a I, I bet there isn't a letters page like there used to be it's all probably done on the internet now but i right. I think it really influenced the way the comics were going, because I, I used to read those, you know, in the backs and, and, you know, look at the many foolish opinions that people had in the many insightful uh, opinions and
2: um, and people just asking questions: Why does the character do this? You know, <laughs>
1: and many of them were, you know, like just continuity error. Um, right.
2: Right. I love the classic. You know, why is it that when Clark Kent puts on his glasses, nobody recognizes Superman? I mean, it's, mm-hmm. you know, is that the worst disguise ever? <laughs> yeah, I tried that once. It did not work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think uh, I have read that uh, the late Julius Schwartz pretty much created comics fandom by uh, printing the letter columns. Um, I. Don't can't remember the source on that. That's not me saying that, but I, I did read that somewhere, and uh, I was very happy to get to know him uh, after he retired. He was a goodwill ambassador for DC, and it was <laughs> it was he was a great guy.
1: This has been great, Bill. Thank you yeah. so much.
2: Well, thank you. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you. It was a pleasure to meet you. <laughs> really, nice meeting uh, you. A
1: true pleasure. Thank mm-hmm. you so much.
2: Oh, you're welcome.